individual Denwin, Sylvia, and uh, Donald are away or doing something else. But it seems that I'm also filling in on unscheduled. Donald called me yesterday, and he is feeling really not well. And he asked if I could um, fill in on short notice, and that was possible. So here I am. He was. He said he was talking about. Uh, he'd been doing a, a sequence on the anatomy of ignorance, and had been had been the last talk was the talk on views and their their uh, role in the uh, the whole phenomenon of ignorance so i listened to it on the way over and um when when i talked to him last night i said you know my view might be different <laughs> and uh he 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 said that would be a good thing so i'm going to share my uh, understanding of uh, views and um, and ignorance, I guess, and we'll see how that goes. One of the things that strikes me uh, pretty strongly about the Buddha's teachings about views, he said, well, the earliest the earliest texts uh, that are um, Pretty generally regarded as among the earliest texts, that the Atakavaga, which is in the Sutta Napada, the Buddha spends a huge amount of time um, discussing views and and the problem with disputes. Um, he says, "This is just a one one of my favorite quotes from here." He says, "There are no ties to him who is free from ideas." There are no delusions to him who is delivered by wisdom. Those who cling to ideas and views wander about annoying others. <laughs> he, uh, he, he spent a lot of time in, the, in those early texts talking about the problems of dispute and warfare that results from it. And he said at a couple of points, he said, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. Which in the, in the Honeyball Sutta, when Dandapani comes to see him and, and uh, sort of sneer at him a little bit, um, the Buddha said, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. Someplace in the Samyutta Nikaya, he says, I don't contend with the world. I don't dispute with the world, though the world may dispute with me. That's pretty, how do we hold that? How do we even understand it? How would you be in order to not contend, to not dispute with the, with the world? What would that be? What would that be like? Can we even imagine it? But that's where the Buddha found himself. What, you know, what is a view? Really, I, I, I had an experience some years ago with a, a cashier at, at a supermarket. And I was going through a period where, you know, they were saying, they always said, how are you? And of course, and that was getting on my nerves. <laughs> And I tried all kinds of things. I even tried Sylvia's line about, couldn't be better, you know, because <laughs> if I could, I would. But, and, and one, one afternoon, I, I, I was trying different things, and a young woman said, so how are, you, how are things going? And I said, things are looking up. And she said, oh, good. You're, you're not one of those end-of-the-world types. I said, no, no. I said, the universe has been around... Uh, 13 billion years, it's probably got a little bit more to go. She said, oh, I don't think it's been 13 billion years. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I live in a university town. You know. I thought she was a holdover to the 18 billion years. But no, she thought it was only 7,000. <laughs> I won't recount how the, the interaction went from there. Uh, 
it wasn't particularly pretty. I think I said something about astronomical measurements, and she said, we'll see, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> but what is a view? Is it a view to think the world is 7,000 years old and not a view to think that it's 13 billion? You know, or to think, is it a view to think that you know, gravity on Earth works, you know, accelerates at, what is it, 62, 64? feet per second per second. I mean, is that a view or what is a view? One of the things that I've been finding particularly helpful recently from in my own understanding and, and practice has been um, to regard some of the teachings of evolutionary biology as really essential uh, to you know, for me to understand uh, what's going on here over over the however many five thousand generations of humans that there have been, uh, and before that, as, assuming there were more than seven thousand years, um, you know, every cell in our body is programmed to reproduce, to survive. These are really deep impulses in us, and the Buddha identifies some of these things, you know, the, the origin of dukkha, he says, is in tanha. And tanha becomes sort of this, um, you know, mystical kind of, what is it? But, but my understanding has settled a bit. As organisms, we want to survive. There's a survival instinct. Anybody, you, you all know what I'm talking about, because it's all there. We want to be something in the future. We want to become something in the future. That was uh, bhava tanha, the, 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 the underlying desire to become, to be in the future. And we want it to be pleasant, kama tanha. We like our experience pleasant. Any, any, isn't that, I mean, we, we don't get up and say, you know, how can I be miserable today? <laughs> what can I do that might be fun, that would be pleasant? Kamatanha. And how do we get rid of this unpleasant stuff that's around Vibhavatanha? These are, these, these are in, in my understanding, um, things, part of our genetic inheritance. Uh, they're not mystical in co-hate kinds, it's possible to recognize them in, in my own response to experience. And I think that this brain that we've got, which is just incredibly complex, you know, it's the most complex thing we found in the universe, is our own brain. Um, this brain has evolved in a way to make us very successful survivors. And, and uh, we've become successful survivors because we can conceptualize our experience and imagine with it and use those conceptual tools to manipulate our, our uh, experience and our lives on the, on the planet and to help us survive. I can outsmart my dog. <laughs> You know, it's, it's not really hard. The poor guy, if you offer him a biscuit, he'll do almost anything, you know. Um, uh, he can think some stuff, but, you know. So I think that um, this, this action of the, ma of the, the brain to represent experience to itself, conceptually, one way or another, with, with memory, with fantasy, with anticipation. Um, this is what the Buddha talked about it's one of, it's as perception, one of the skandhas, one of the basic elements of our, of our being. That this tendency of the mind to label our, its experience so that we can think about it and use it. And, and also, just as an aside, I think that in the process of labeling, we also, self also emerges. 
itself emerges as part of, because it helps to f not just have a conceptual map of the world, of our experience, but also of our position in it, so that we can be more successful. So I think that that, that, that selfing process is part of this evolutionary uh, inheritance as well. Nothing wrong with it, just doesn't lead to peace of mind. <laughs> um, you know, the birds outside my window who are very worried about survival uh, are not peaceful. <laughs> you know, most of them don't look, they're just flitting around, fighting over food. Um, so the process of perceiving, and this doesn't just mean, you know, thinking this is a pen. Although this is a real simple perception. We have a, a, a word, a noun, that regards this as pen. That when you hold this, you see shapes and colors, but you think pen. But there's also narrative, story, what's going on. You know, there's, there's the perception of, there's uh, things, an accident. What is an accident? An accident is an unfolding in time. It's not a thing you can't, at the neuro-linguistic uh, programming people say, if you can't put it in a, in a wheelbarrow, it's, a, it's an abstract noun. You, know, you can't put an accident in a wheelbarrow unless it's a little one. You know. But even you know, to perceive impermanence, it's a sophisticated perception, but it's still a perception. And it requires time and comparison, and, but it's still a perception. <clears throat> and we have stories, narratives about what's going on that help us orient and find our way through the world. The Buddha's got views, these kind of views, uh, they play a role at all levels. One of the things, one of the kinds of papancha, when you close your eyes and try to follow your breath and your mind just goes off, one of, the, one of the kinds of papancha is the papancha of views. It's visible, you know, thinking about ideas. And, and at the deeper levels, it's one of the, one of the basic defilements, one of the asavas, right up there with... Uh, You know, the desire for pleasant experience, the tendency to, to desire pleasant experience uh, with ignorance and with the attachment, the tendency to attach to views, to our understandings. It's a tendency, um, in, when it comes to views, when it comes to ideas, clinging is believing. So we believe them. We think that they do represent the way things are. Um, and, and, you know, we've done this, you know, in the Buddha's time, you know, when uh, we thought the sun went around the earth, and now we think the earth goes around the sun, and who knows whether some, you know, reformulated uh, vision in the future, we'll see gravity as just, some, you know, we would actually relate to it directly as a bending of space-time. Um, but we think these ideas are accurate representations. And yet, I guess, you know, my, my, my favorite, you know, there's, there are no things. There are nouns as parts of speech, but since everything is in is impermanent and in transition. These pieces of paper weren't pieces of paper probably years ago, and they probably won't be years from now. The snapshot at this moment, we call it paper, it's a noun. But it's just in transition. Things are just in transition. So, so views are rooted in our perception, which is a natural part of what we do, 
You know, it's part of our, the way our organism functions. But they can cause us a lot of trouble. We often, often, if not mostly, substitute our views for our direct uh, apprehension of our experience. Um, the Buddha listed right view as the first element in the Eightfold Path. And that's a pretty interesting thing, right view. And the elements, the Eightfold Path itself is, I regard it as a unity. And we're, we, we, we sort of uh, refract these eight elements to try to highlight the way of living without dukkha. That's the, this is the path to the cessation of dukkha. The way of living without dukkha starts with right view and then moves to right intention. Right view, in this sense, means a view that does not enhance dukkha. It's, not, it's interesting that it's not about true or false for the Buddha. True or false, we want, we want to know true or false. We want it something to cling to. something to, We want to believe the true and not believe the false. And we also have our standards for establishing true and false. We believe those, too. We cling to those. But for the Buddha, the issue wasn't true or false, right or wrong, or even good or bad. As such, it was this view enhanced dukkha. Because the second element is intention. Skillful intention is an intention that doesn't enhance dukkha, that instead leads to the cessation of suffering, of dissatisfaction. And all of our intentions flow from our understandings. As far as I can see, you know, if you think you're going to make yourself happy by chasing after what you want, then you'll chase after what you want. You know, if your understanding of, of things is that you will get wet if you go out in the rain, you'll take an umbrella. I mean, your intentions flow from your understanding. And the Eightfold Path is an ethical path. Speech, action, livelihood. Right speech, right action, right livelihood are the features of our behavior that don't enhance dukkha. So right view also has an ethical component. It's not, it's, 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 and the ethical element has to do with, with dukkha. With whether the views that we cling to enhance dukkha or not. Some of these ideas are so abstract. I think of mathematics sometimes. You know, the square root of minus one doesn't exist in the physical world. Um, but it exists conceptually, right? You know, there's, there are all kinds of, my son's a mathematician, I have no idea what all that stuff, those marks are. <laughs> but, but he thinks there's something. <laughs> you know, the, con the concept can be free-floating. It doesn't have to refer to something, um, you know, we can imagine unicorns and, um, and we can imagine possibilities. Some of these views are pleasant and some of them are not pleasant. But they're all, but they, they all function similarly. We use them as tools to guide, our, to guide our behavior. Interesting, this is something the Buddha said. He said, I do not say that one attains purification by view, tradition, knowledge, 
virtue or ritual, nor is it attained without view, tradition, knowledge, virtue or ritual. You like that? It's, that's the Buddha being Zen. <laughs> it was Zen before there was Zen. It's only taking these factors as the means and not grasping them as ends in themselves that one so attains and consequently does not crave for re-becoming. It's from the Sutta Napata. Views are going to exist. We're going to, we're going to have them in our awareness. And, and right understanding, right view, Samaditi, in a way, is the whole ball game. Seeing things correctly. Correctly? Seeing things in a way that, that doesn't make things worse for ourselves and others. I, I once, you know, and even, even the Buddhist understanding, I sat in a Dharma discussion once that... Uh, where one, and it, it was in a, a small sangha, this was some years ago, where one woman said, I, um, you don't have a self. And the other person said, yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do have a self. No, you don't. And they got into a huge fight, and then this woman took herself and went away and never came back. <laughs> um, it's not just the content of the... Of <coughs> the idea of the notion, of the view, but it's also the way we hold it that becomes uh, an issue. The Buddha said, I don't contend with anyone. What kind of a view doesn't contend with anyone? Maybe he doesn't, does he not have any views? He's got right view. Mm. These views, any idea itself, we, we, can't, we react to. So, you know, if you think about the national discussion on Obamacare, pleasant? <laughs> Not so much. Although maybe, you know, there are people who, who might find it pleasant, wanting Obamacare to fail. So they would find problems pleasant or, you know, be satisfying. But the idea, any idea, can be pleasant or unpleasant. They don't have to be opinions, even. Global warming, is, is it a view? Is it a, it's an idea. It's a concept. And we react. We have a reaction to it. It's, um, you know, in terms of the skandhas, we have, a, 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 there's a feeling tone that goes with it. And we can um, find ourselves experiencing aversion or other kinds, of, and we react to that. One of the one of the way, one of the things that happens when people have views that we don't like is we try to make them go away. Present company accepted, but isn't you know isn't isn't one way of eliminating a view? This vibhava tanha in spades, you know. Let's kill the people who hold the view. <coughs> then the view will be obliterated. Babawatanhas, right out of you know, the, the evolutionary package that we've become. Some views are unpleasant, some views are pleasant. One of the things, one of the things that's um, that's strange is that we we often don't don't think of that. As a major element, this is something that Tan Jeff wrote. It was a comment on this phrase from the Sutta Napata. Uh, 
He says, that, say the wise, is a fetter in dependence on which one sees others as inferior. It's a fetter, a standard for judgment. Han Jeff says, a view is true or false only when one is judging how accurately it refers to something else. If one is regarding it simply as a statement, simply as an event in and of itself, true and false don't apply. What applies is whether the view is pleasant or unpleasant, whether it adds to suffering or not. Some of it has to do with, well, you know, speech, action, livelihood, right speech should be reflecting right view. One of the elements of right speech is supposed to be speaking the truth, not speaking falsely. In fact, one of the, not one of the precepts not to speak falsely. But there are times when speaking falsely is what's appropriate. When the Nazis knock on the door and ask if Anne Frank is home. There, you, you can be a fundamentalist on this and say, well, you have to finesse the question. I have a dear friend who works, who works, who does a lot of hospice work and she was working with a woman uh, who, as it turned out, was dying on this, this afternoon. And she'd been working with her for some time, and they had become friendly friends. And this, this afternoon, the woman turned to her, looked at her, and said, I know you're a Buddhist, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the res- resurrection, don't you? And she said, of course. Which felt to me feels to me like the compassionate response. The woman relaxed because her friend, she felt that her friend was going to be saved. You know, that I, you know my, my view is that that it was a compassionate response, although it may not be true. So the issue is about not so much true and false, or right or wrong, or accurate or inaccurate. But how it functions in our lives, how a view functions in our lives. And it's, it's you know, opinions, opinions have, have their own things that we recognize as opinions about how things should be. An idea of how th- something should be when we when we have an idea about how it should be and cling to it, then when things don't match that, you know, judgment happens. And when the judgment is negative, well, that's unpleasant, and then there's aversion and anger and stuff happens. All judgment, as far as I can tell, is rooted in a belief that is clung to about how things should be. This is good, this is bad. Things are as they are. And when we are, when we have an intention, we see what we want to see. So, you know, when one of my favorite Indian aphorisms, which there was a time some years ago when it showed up in almost in every Dharma talk I gave for months. When a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. So what's important is, I mean, you know, the intention here creates what you see creates the world you see, you see the pockets. In some views, the intentions are buried pretty deep. You might have a view about Fed policy and 
some exotic formula about uh, interest rates and money supply. And you know, is that a, is that right view? You know, the please. What about when the saint meets the pickpocket, who's who's been who's been robbed by the the saint's been robbed by the pickpocket before? Then what does the saint see? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. <laughs> so is that a view about the pickpocket? It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's a perception. And I don't distinguish. You know, the words are, are, are different. Sanya as perception and ditti as view. But I see them as very similar. The distortions of perception are to see permanence or stability in what's impermanent, to see the potential for, for satisfaction in what is inherently incapable of providing it, and to see essentiality in what is, has no essential nature. Those are d distortions of perception. Wrong view would be to see, not, or right view is to see, um, to perceive impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self or emptiness, anicca, dukkha, anatta, they're, they're, very, they're, they're the same. So a, a view can be a view of, of history, it can be a view of science. And what's important, and, and there are some views which, which are about how things ought to be. Things should be this way. Things should be that way or views about what our essential nature is. You know, most of these cases, how do you not <coughs> contend in the realm of these views? The Buddha said, I don't contend with anyone. You know, I teach a Dharma that doesn't contend with anyone. How does one regard these views, these ideas, these thoughts? So it's not unskillful to recognize you know, last time I hung out with this guy, picked my pocket, um, and to be careful. But you know, you can see how how views and predispositions and and prejudice can uh, lead you to see only what you want to see. When we listen to Rush Limbaugh, you know, we. What do we react to? We react to his views. We don't see him as a creature like us who wants to be happy, who's suffering like us, whose life is not satisfactory like, like ours. We, you know, just the thought of Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> you, you know what I mean. <laughs> And, and that's the way we respond to views. You know? We live in, in, our, in our views. We create this world full of pockets. And, and the, 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 the perception of ignorance is interesting because it's often understood as a noun. It's, you know, something we don't know about, but it's something we do. It's something we do by specifically not looking at what we know is true. You know, this, this impermanence, this great impermanence, we don't, we don't like it. I, I was reading a story uh, in the Times about how doctors die and you know, how they make use of hospice. And they know when to, to say, okay, you know. Uh, and the, in the article, there was a sentence that jumped out. The guy was saying, well, the purpose of hospice, we all know, is, is to uh, um, provide for the highest quality of life for the time remaining. And I thought, well, we're all in hospice. <laughs> <laughs> Really, I mean, although we don't want to think it, 
We, we do, we don't, we don't know. Later. Satisfaction in this life? We don't want to hear, hear that. And I think this, there's evolutionary reasons for this too. If, you know, if you were sitting out on the savanna, deep in existential angst, you probably would be lunch before you had a chance to <laughs> pass on your, your genes. So ignorance isn't, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an active thing that we do by not attending to the way things are. And as a result, we act out on, on impulses that uh, are not as helpful, that make things harder for ourselves and others. So views that are unpleasant become dukkha, become a, a, a locus of dukkha. They become a source of, or place for suffering. You know, in, the, in the, uh, the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha lists the, um, what, the, the you know, dukkha. The first truth is dukkha. What is dukkha? Well, birth is dukkha, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, lamentation, distress, and despair. <coughs> getting what you don't want is dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. Losing what is dear is dukkha. Bummer. <laughs> you know, all unpleasant. All unpleasant things. And when that un when when one of those when one of those unpleasant experiences encounters our our evolutionary preference for pleasant, what we get is a reaction which is dukkha. So you can actually separate that dukkha between the, the reaction and the, the experience. Is it possible to experience unpleasantness without suffering? That's the, the practice, of course. A compassionate response to someone who is suffering, well, if someone is hungry, you can give them a lecture on the Dharma, or you can feed them. <laughs> you know, the lecture on the Dharma is a luxury for us. It's, it's just an incredible blessing for us to have access to these teachings. If we can regard these impulses that arise, the, the anger that comes up when we encounter a view that is unpleasant, you know, if we can recognize that quickly and just let it dissipate, we don't need to suffer as much. But it's kind of hard in the heat of argument to retreat to there. You know what I mean? It's, uh, there, there is, as my wife says, there are the teachings and then there's life. <laughs> and we're in, we're in the midst, in the midst of it. Um, so I've been working, just personally, I've been working with um, the news. I, you know, Syl Sylvia sometimes talks about how I used to have a practice where I would listen to the talk radio people. And um, that was, that was a, a great practice for years. Um, and now they bore me. But the news still, um, I find the news, when I watch the news, listen to the news, it evokes ill will. Is it just me? <laughs> and I thought, well, good. Thought, <laughs> staying home too much. Um, is that skillful? You know, is it skillful to you know? It's 
Yonasamanasakara, wise attention, skillful attention. Joseph says, you know, if, you're, if you have an addiction to shopping and can't control use of your credit card, if you find yourself walking down Fifth Avenue, for God's sakes, don't look in the windows. You know, if you, ha- if you, you know, ha- are, have problems with alcohol, don't hang out in bars. If you're a gambler, et cetera, et cetera. If you have problems with the news, <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because we also have a view that about being informed. It's, it, we should be informed. We should know what's right. It's an, it's an opinion about how things should be. I'm sorry? Oh, no, that's just, that's just <laughs> wriggling. <laughs> that's, that's just trying to hedge. <laughs> I'll listen to the news, but I'll get it from John Stewart. <laughs> but if it's not unpleasant to you... Like, if it's not unpleasant, absolutely. And, yeah. and even if it is unpleasant, is it possible to be with unpleasant experience? You know, Ajahn Amro once uh, gave, gave some advice to someone who asked a question about sitting with pain. Anybody had that experience? You know, sitting with pain? And, and uh, whether you should, you know, change your position in response to discomfort. And he said, well, you know, if you're sitting, and you're sitting with discomfort, this is a great opportunity to study your own reaction to it, to study what, it's, what it is, and, and to learn to, ways to be present with it. Because some, at some point in our lives, we're not going to be able to make the discomfort go away. But he said, you know, at some point, the, the pain and discomfort can become severe enough that to change positions becomes an act of compassion and not an act of aversion. One of the first retreat I ever sat on, sat on, sit on a retreat, sat, <laughs> sit on a retreat. First retreat was with Thich Nhat Hanh, yeah, and and the woman who was she wasn't sitting next to me; she was lying down next to me, and at the end of the retreat, when you get to talk, it turned out that she had. I've been on a Zen session when she'd been told to sit through the pain and she did herself some serious nerve damage and now she had to lie down through the pain. Um, So whether to listen to the news or not, the issue is, you know, look at it more closely. Is this a reaction of aversion? Or is this something that, is this something deeper? And how does one be with Opinions we don't like. There are so many people out there who will, you know, their way to deal with the Bawatana, make it go away, annihilate the unpleasant. So being able to 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 relate to the to the views that we're exposed to, we're exposed to just constant. You know, it's not just it's not just, and it's, 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 you perceive the intention. Uh, it's, it reminds me of that um, Bruce Springsteen song, The Whole World Is Out There Just Trying to Score. I've seen enough, I don't want to see anymore. <laughs> you know, how do you get away from hype? And how do you make peace with it? The Buddha said he teaches a dharma that doesn't contend with anyone. He doesn't contend with the world, though it may contend with him. That's just a, that's an incredible navigational tool. Because it suggests that the, the attitude towards views is one of investigation, to look more deeply. Because we see the world through, how do we how do we understand the world? You know, there's a there's a one of the Zen patriarchs is supposed to have said. I read it somewhere, so it must be true. Um, that if you understand something, all you have is a concept. But if you don't understand something, what you've got is ignorance. 
there are these, you know, six sense streams, the five senses, the physical senses, and the mind as a sense gate. And the mental sense gate is the sense gate of perception. It is the mental activity of perception, of, of seeing conceptually, in a way, and it doesn't have to be language, although language is what we use most, but it can be a memory, it's a map. The Eightfold Path is a view, it's a perception, it's an understanding. Then understanding dukkha, dukkha is a view, perceiving dukkha is a perception. So views can be very helpful, and in fact, almost essential for knowing what's going on. I remember, I don't know whether I told you this story, when I was about 16, car culture was really big. And, you know, there was, in high school, everybody, people had cars, and they were building their cars, and talking about their cars, and painting their cars. And I was sort of more into photography and astronomy. Um, and I hung out with people who were more into those things too, and we used to sort of, you know, car culture. We had our, we had our opinions. And one point, I guess I must have been about 16 or 17, probably, no, I would have been younger, maybe, because I wasn't driving. <clears throat> the guy who was my best friend at the time, we went out to my parents' car and opened the hood of the car and looked in. We had no idea. We looked in and started laughing because we had no clue what we were seeing. That wires, I could have said wires, you know, and I could have said fan belt and fan. But otherwise, it was just this lump of metal, kind of greasy and dirty, and I had no idea. I had no idea what I was looking at. I had no concepts to map that experience. Without the concepts, you don't even, you can't represent, you can't think about what's going on in there. You know? Really, I had no idea what was going on. Now, when I look and open the hood of my car, I still have no idea. <laughs> but for a dear, I can't even see anything in there. Um, so concepts are important. And then the question is whether the, whether the concepts, whether the understanding, enhances dukkha or attenuates dukkha. The Buddha talks about the kinds of... This is from the Sutta Napada again. He's talking about speech. But, you know, it applies to our views, to our understanding too. May we utter only such words as do not cause ourselves anguish and would not cause harm to others. These indeed are words well uttered, or thoughts well thought, views well held. May we speak only loving words, those words which make people happy, which carry no evil intent, and speak lovingly to others, and think lovingly about ourselves and others. We are so addicted to true, we want, we hold on to these views because we want something to cling to. We don't like this big impermanence. We want to avoid it. We want some stability. We want some certainty. We want some, we want to know what's true so that we can hold on to it. We, the search for meaning is a search for something to cling to. And that can be a meaning in a, in a sense of purpose, or it can be the meaning of a particular word. And views become the locus of a lot of our clinging. And then when we grasp the views, we go around annoying others. So I guess, you know, the, the takeaway might, might be best, um, what, what uh, Zen Master Sang San used to say, only don't know. Mm -hmm. 
You know, Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you, when you have an idea, particularly if it's, if it's something that's stressful, you know, ask yourself whether, it's, whether you're sure it's true. Byron Katie says, is it true? Is it absolutely true? How would you be without that thought? You know, when we mistake the view, you know, Zen, Zen is a finger pointing to the moon. When we mistake the finger for the moon, what will be served? Our views are pointing at things. They're helping us reference things. They're really important for us to work with. They've made us successful, but when we mistake the view for the experience, we run a risk because views as things, they are impermanent. Views are impermanent. Timothy Leary used to say you can go from being a radical to a conservative in 20 years without changing a single idea. <laughs> Views are impermanent. They are not satisfactory. They're dukkha. They're anicca, they're dukkha, and they're anatta. They're without substance. That's pretty clear. <laughs> they just float through. So if we can regard views, if we can look at them and investigate them as phenomena in and of themselves, phenomenologically, just, just, you know, and looking, watching our reaction to them, and then our views about our reaction to them, and then our reactions to our views about our reactions to them. Papancha, basically. So the takeaway might be only don't know. Don't know mind. The mind that doesn't contend with anyone. It doesn't that doesn't that uh, doesn't dispute. So that's my view and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> We take a couple of minutes for questions and or comments or thoughts or irritations. <laughs> well, well, when you say doesn't contend with anyone, when I think of contend, I think of dealing with. So dispute. He means to dispute. Doesn't argue with. Doesn't dispute with. That's how I understand it. Okay. Yeah. The biggest danger of views came to mind when you talked about the same thing with the pocket. Mm -hmm. And the next time you see the pickpocket, your reaction was probably just a joke is, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. But the pickpocket, the second time, might not be a pickpocket. He might he not be. be. A reformed person. He could be someone who could be extremely useful. And the danger in holding the view is that you don't see the reality or deal fairly with the reality. That's true. That's true. The flip side is also true. I do work at Folsom Prison, and I work in the uh, uh, psychiatric wing. And in that, in that place, you don't really know much about that unless you go in there, the, the men are not allowed to be in to be in touch with another, be another person, not in shackles. So when I meet with them, I meet with them in cages. They're not called cages, okay, but they are. They're about four by four by seven. And I work with them, and we do meditation, and we talk about stuff. Now, you could say that that, that cage is a, is a form of you know, it's, it's an imposing on, on these people and not giving them the chance. But what happens is that if you, if you let them out, the, the consequences have been really uh, lethal. So, you know, it's a middle path. Really, the Buddha was, was so clear. One of the reasons why the middle path applies to views, no view to cling to, this one or that one. So you're right. 
you, you stigmatize the pickpocket, but you know, this, the, the mind has evolved to help us survive. So we can pretend that, you know, this person isn't a danger to others. I like these guys. What are the guys just young and vital? And he says, and I have no impulse control. <laughs> you know? Oh. You know? Reality. But a, a more innocuous example would be I, I'm a hospice patient care volunteer, mm -hmm. and my most recent patient, um, 93-year-old woman, um, can still move about with a walker a little bit. Uh -huh. And every time, for the first half dozen times I saw her, I asked her, what would you like to do today? And after she said, I would like to die, we were talking about other things that she wanted to do. And, and I would always ask her, do you want to... You can get in your wheelchair, and I'll take you out for a walk with you outside. It's a beautiful day. And she said no, and she said no, and she said no. And I stopped asking. And then one day at the end mm -hmm. of the visit, um, she happened to say, you know, it was a lovely day outside. I would have loved to have gone out in my wheelchair and go mm -hmm. for a walk. Mm -hmm. And it was my assumption about her mm -hmm. desire yeah. that prevented that sure. experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we, to, 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 the trick is to, you know, it's, it's middle path. The trick is to feel what's going on and make the best judgment you can. The issue is intention. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't your failing to ask her that prevented it from happening. It was, she didn't say anything either at the beginning. True. I mean, so, so uh, you know. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Please. Well. You're saying that about your experience in the prison and the uh -huh. middle, middle path pulled your whole talk together for me because honestly, it was really very befuddled. It was befuddled. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, no. It wasn't your fault. I, was, I just couldn't couldn't grasp it. But then I thought, oh, now I get it. The middle path. It's the middle path. It's the middle path. Sometimes this, sometimes that. Who knows? You just. Have Donald to says it's tricky. It. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I'm glad you gave that example. That helped. Right. Well, the middle path of between shifting for discomfort and shifting out of compassion, between acting out of aversion and anger and acting out of compassion, you know, we have to watch what our intentions are. And it's, it's a middle path of direct experience. When you have an idea, when you cling to an idea, you've latched on to one, one thing. But we, we can't work without them. So we have to learn how to manage our relationship to them. Yeah? Um, I have a view that causes me dukkha, and it's that people shouldn't use their cell phones like in a, in a public area, that they should maybe like step outside or, you know, like... And I was in art class yesterday, and we're painting, and there's someone on their cell phone, and I just think, wow, like there's a whole room out there, you know. But I didn't, you know, I just let it go. So for me, how I handled the dukkha is how Pema Chodron said. I know I've said it once before. Don't make a big deal out of things. So that's what I try to do. It's like I have an opinion. <laughs> yeah. And I just. Okay, that's my opinion, but I'm not going to make a big deal. The world is going to be the way the world yeah. is. Mm -hmm. Whatever we think about it will be, we can, you know, unpleasant. I, I was shunted to a second line in an Apple store and was fuming. <laughs> and I thought, this is just, Only this second. is, it was the second, yeah, it was the second line. And I, 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 Oh, I just all I wanted to do was to pick up my computer. I wanted to say to somebody, "It's ready. Can I? You get it?" And I stood there in the second line, waiting to be triaged again. And <laughs> I thought, "Well, you know, I can, I can. I'm going to be standing here. I can be all bent, or I can look around and see what's going on and enjoy myself." Well, I was lucky. I had that choice because I saw it because it was really clear, often we don't see that choice. You know, the world is going to be the way it's going to be, or, and it is the way it is, and we can make it worse, or we can 
not contend with it. That doesn't mean you don't do anything. Just contending, particularly out of aversion, anger. And the views are our handholds often for that. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.